0: Welcome everyone. And good evening. It's good to be with you again.
1: Okay, so we'll do a sitting now. And um, I, two months ago, I talked about Samatha and last month Vipassana. And so this month, I'm going to be actually doing a slightly guided meditation Uh, you know, not the whole time, but I'll be coming in and out with how we can really use the practices in harmony to give you a little flavor of, you know, what that might feel like. So I won't, I won't be exactly on where you're at, but um, you can get a sense of, of the instructions of, you know, how these practices can really weave together in a way that they, they really support each other quite beautifully. So we'll sit for about half an hour.
0: So I'll go ahead and take your, your
1: meditation posture. Really feeling seated in your chair or on your zafu or bench
0: with your knees or your feet really planted. Landing here and arriving at the
1: end of your day. And trying to have a sense of relaxation and also uprightness,
0: alertness. And now starting with the Samatha, with the mindfulness
1: of breathing. And if you want to do this in the classical Samatha way, you would know the breath. In the area between the upper lip and the nostril, the anapana spot or region. And being a concentration practice, this smaller area can bring the mind stream together in a particular way. Or if you prefer to know the breath as a body based, meditation, you can know the breath in the belly or the
0: chest, wherever it's most noticeable for you. So being with the breath now for a few minutes to settle settle our awareness. Noticing where your attention is now, if it's wandered, you can work with it the way we do in Samatha and bring the attention back to the breath. And then
1: Vipassana, we also can settle the mind coming back to the breath. It's always there as an anchor. If you feel ready to go on to a more open awareness, you can include body
0: sensations as we do in the Noticing any feeling in the body. You can also include sound. Allow your body awareness to become the object. And if you find you're getting lost, you can always come back to the breath. And now, if you feel settled, we could also consider including the mind category in the possible, which includes emotions and thoughts. Noticing these or noting, applying just a one word label as a way of making contact with your experience. Is fine. And again, if you find that you want to settle your awareness, you can always return to the body. And if you find that you're getting caught up in distractions, another way to work with that, both in samata and vipassana, is to investigate what we're getting caught up in. Not becoming
1: identified, but being curious, in a gentle
0: spirit of curiosity to know that Hindrance are divine. It's planning. What does planning really feel like? It's behind the impulse. This is another way to work with our patterning in both Samatha and Vipassana. And in these last few minutes of the meditation, really committing to being present in this moment, either using the breath
1: and the samatha, or noticing the, the flow
0: of contents of your experience in the pastma. Both of these practices bring us into the, our present moment experience. Okay, so we'll go ahead and get started.
1: So tonight I'll, is the third in a series on Samatha and Vipassana in harmony. The first one I talked about Samatha, the second Vipassana, and tonight I'll really be focusing on the two together. And I will have all three talks on Dharma Seed if you miss the other two, and also my newsletter will come out in my newsletter if you're on that. Um, so there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of confusion and even conflict regarding the two practices over the, the millennia, I think even maybe since the day of the Buddha. Um, and if you look at what the Buddha said, you know, if we looked at what he and those around him were saying in the suttas, when, uh, when he was asked, he said that even in his day, there were Samatha yogis, there were Vipassana yogis, but he really felt it was best to be both a Samatha and Vipassana yogi. That was in his view, the, um, the best, uh, option. So he wasn't really ambivalent, you know, wasn't ambiguous from his standpoint and he practiced both practices all the way up until his death. So, uh, so if we just look at him as a role model, that's really, really clear from the suttas. So it isn't an either or. I think somehow it's it's uh, over time or in some places become kind of an either or. And it really, there's no reason for it to be an either or. The Buddha thought highly of both practices and practiced him themselves and taught both of them. And, um, and they can work together beautifully. So... Um, so some of the things about um, the practices, I'll be kind of comparing and contrasting them a little bit more tonight. So what's compelling about each of them? Well, with the Samatha practice, we're really bringing the mind stream together. You could even see if you were noticing the breath, that's done differently in Samatha than it is in Vipassana. In Samatha, we're really noticing if we're doing it in the technical way, it's in this small area, it's outside of the body. So it's not a mindfulness in the body. It's really noticed outside of the body between this area, between the upper lip and the the rim of the nostril. So it could be a spot, could be more like, you know, a grapefruit or orange size area, Um, but it's small. It's a smaller area and that is, Samatha is a concentration and serenity practice. So it's bringing the mind stream together. And that's part of why having a smaller object is beneficial for doing that. Um, It also is really, we're in the Samatha practice, where we have an object, we're not investigating it. We're just knowing it generally. And that is part of where the serenity comes in because we're not doing a whole lot. We're we're just with this one object in this one area in a general way. And so there's a, a more of an emphasis on serenity in that. Of course, you know, both practices have both all of these things, but they're just emphasizing them differently. And we could make a comparison, like with physical exercise If meditation is exercise for our consciousness. With the body, we have the two main categories. And then there are other categories of exercise, cardio, like running and weights that build our muscles. And, um, when we're doing weight training, yes, we're going to develop some cardio, but uh, we're mainly gonna be building our muscles. And when we're doing cardio, say we're running, we are gonna build leg muscles, but we're going to really be building our whole cardiovascular system. So it's kind of like that, both of them cross over about the emphasis. And then as we get into the practice more and more, they, they get more and more different in that way. So. Um, So the Samatha is compelling in that we're bringing the mind stream together and we're really challenging our patterning in a big way. You're going to notice the hindrances and defilements, the things that take us off really quickly and really deeply in the Samatha. And we also obviously notice those in Vipassana. And the is also orienting really we're orienting towards the mystery that's out that's beyond materiality and mentality. We're not really investigating our thoughts or the body, um, so we're we're really orienting toward that mystery that's beyond all that that's in the the immaterial. So in Vipassana, then. Um, what we're cultivating. So even with the breath, you can see, we can know it in the belly, the chest, it can move, doesn't matter if it's in one spot, it can change. Um, And then of course, there are all these other objects in the Vipassana of awareness that include not just the breath, but all body sensations are candidates for our observation, for our knowing, for our noticing, sounds, anything from any of the sense doors that, you know, if our eyes are open, sight. Um, When we're doing eating, meditation, taste is part of it. When we're walking, movement is part of what we can notice. So even in just in the body category, there's a whole lot there. And then there's what's the mind category, which includes emotions. So, you know, being with an emotion that's coming up, maybe you're frustrated with your practice. Well, what does frustration feel like? What does it feel like to be really frustrated that I can't be with the breath? Well, now you're in the present moment again because you're investigating your frustration. So um, if we're really doing Vipassana and we're investigating whatever's predominant, which leads to choiceless awareness where whatever is predominant in the present moment becomes the object whatever's happening we can be in the present moment so what's compelling one of the things that's compelling about vipassana is that we're really building the muscle we're building the muscle in samatha of turning away from those groups really challenging them by just coming back to the spot over and over um, to the breath there in vipassana we're cultivating an ability to be with whatever is arising without getting overly, without getting attached to the pleasant. So say we're having really good period of sitting for five minutes and and then we start, we get lost or we get irritated with something that's happening in our environment. Well, we can see we got attached to the pleasant. You know, so now we're seeing that or can we be tolerant of the unpleasant? When unpleasant things things happen, Vipassana helps us just go, oh, yeah, that's unpleasant. I can feel how much I dislike that. And so then how much we dislike it becomes the object of the meditation. And now we're not off of the object anymore. We're investigating, rejecting whatever it was that happened. And uh, it also helps us be with the neutral which has gotten a lot more, I think, important in the last 20 years because we're through our constant um, looking at and being bombarded with entertainment, with our devices, with pings, with chats, with texts, with feeds. um, We're actually changing our consciousness in ways they can measure in the lab and, um, And so what in Vipassana, can we just be with neutral? If we're just sitting there and things are fairly neutral, not that much is happening. Do we have to, do we find that we start fantasizing a little bit about what we're having for lunch or our next vacation, you know, or what we're doing this weekend because we can't tolerate neutral. So these are, part. this is part of what we're cultivating in Vipassana is an ability to really let everything in and uh, without getting identified with it. That's the other thing is that we're noticing without getting identified and we're investigating. This is another big difference between the practices. With Samatha, we're, we're resting, we're being in the stillness, we're not doing anything. With Vipassana, we can do that if we're being with the breath, but ultimately Vipassana is really about investigating our experience and and, um, being curious about what these things are like in such a way that we go beyond our reactivity and we cultivate an equanimity of being able to be with whatever it is and, and be okay with it or notice our reactivity and become less identified with the reactivity. So the way we challenge the grooves in our consciousness in Vipassana is by noticing the grooves and either coming back to the breath or investigating them. So we can investigate them really as a, a core part of the practice. So in both practices, how do we work with hindrances? We can we work with them kind of similarly, but the emphasis is different. So in, in samatha, when hindrances come up or defilements, when we see those grooves that are pulling us off of the breath, we're really mainly challenging those by by coming back to the breath. Whatever it is, we don't we don't have to do any we don't notice it, we don't investigate it, we don't put a word on it, we just come back to the breath. Now the only time you would use investigation in samatha is if say especially like on retreat or or it could happen in a daily sitting where you just literally can't be with a breath. You've got something going on that's so taking you off of the breath that really all you can do then is apply a small dose of Vipassana. So even if we're only doing Samatha, we're still applying a dose of Vipassana by, you know, if we're just can't be with the breath and we're just obsessing over, you know, something at work we have tomorrow, then we can turn towards that hindrance or defilement and investigate, okay, What's it really like to feel agitation? Well, in my stomach, I feel a knot, you know, and I feel just like scratchy and stirred up. And, and we investigate it just enough to open it up and then we come back to the breath. So that's how we work with hindrances in Samatha. In Vipassana, if we're agitated, we can come back to the breath wherever we're knowing that as a way to settle the mind. But ultimately, in Vipassana, we will use the investigation to really explore that um, pattern. You know, why is it that what we start noticing with either practice is that we have certain grooves in our consciousness that play over and over and over, it's like our top 10 hits, you know, that it's planning it, the contents of the planning may be different, but wow, I'm doing a lot of planning. So uh, we can feel into, we don't become identified with the planning, but we might feel into what's behind the need to be planning. Is it, and it could be a a lot of different things, depending on the person, it could be anxiety, I'm planning to prevent mistakes in the future, that if I just plan it enough, it'll be perfect, and no mistakes will ever happen, that you can feel a little bit of that and that can lead to some deeper understandings about why that compulsive planning has is there how is it how what why is that defense mechanism in our consciousness there and that can open it up or it could be out of desire well i'm planning because i like thinking about the fun things i'm going to do this weekend i'd rather do that than be sitting here with my my breath So now we can feel desire or planning could be happening because we don't like that it's neutral and we're trying to make it more exciting. And so we can see it as a kind of, you know, it's a sort of delusion. It's an aversion to neutral. So these are all ways that through the investigation, we can actually open up a a compulsive pattern that is always running under the surface when we're not meditating, whatever you're seeing when you're meditating, that is running all the time under the surface. It's just that we're seeing it when we meditate. So that's what we're doing in Vipassana. Now in Vipassana, if we get agitated, we apply a little bit of Samatha. So we come back to the breath to stabilize the agitation so here in each practice we're applying a little bit of the other and this is one way that you know even without them being in harmony we're already doing that we're already using them together in a certain way Um, and in vipassana we're really investigating our experience to potentially know it at a deeper level that is beyond Our conceptual understanding of the human experience. So, each practice, when it goes to its ultimate potential, we're penetrating um, a different understanding of reality that can be potentially um, quite freeing to our consciousness. They just come at it from very different ways. So, um, in so in different traditions of Theravada and Buddhism, they handle the two practices differently. So in, um, in the Burmese tradition, they mainly do one and the other. They do them, they don't, they apply it the way I've been talking about, but they don't um, tend to integrate the practices as much as in the Thai forest tradition. So even at monasteries, You will find that depending on the lineage, like in the Powak lineage where I was authorized to teach, uh, the Samatha is taught first and one goes as far as they possibly can in the Samatha just applying a little bit of Vipassana here and there to work through the, the hindrances and defilements. But mainly you're just getting more and more and more and more concentrated and there's different things that can happen potentially as we get more as our mind stream becomes more concentrated where we can really penetrate through to deeper understandings of, of reality and of our own consciousness and be free more and more from our patterns. Um, but that is done. And then the Vipassana is done in the Powak lineage in Burma. And um, the Mahasi And in the Mahasi Sai Upandita lineage, which is taught at the insight centers in the US, um, Spirit Rock IMS and like IMT, um, and also the Thai forest is is taught, it's kind of a mix. But in the Mahasi lineage, they teach Vipassana first and then once, and then usually after one has a lot of experience with Vipassana then Um, the brahma viharas are taught intensively where you have a chance the brahma viharas are and this includes metta loving kindness joy equanimity and compassion and those are taught as concentration practices in that lineage so uh, they, they usually wait until a person is pretty far along before they teach it intensively for the purposes of concentration in that lineage. Um, and in the Burmese tradition, they don't really teach the Samatha using the Anapanasati that I know of. Um, that, that wasn't a focus. Uh, in the Goenka tradition, which is pretty widely practiced by a lot of Western people, they teach the Samatha first for several days. Um, and then, and they teach it pretty much the way I was saying using the, you know, the Anapanasati region. And then they go to Vipassana. They don't take the Samatha to its fullest potential. So that's, but that's how it's done in the Burmese traditions. It's pretty separate. In the Thai forest tradition, so this would be Ajahn Chah and a lot of his um, lineage holders, which include um, uh, Ajahn, Ajahn Brahm in Australia, Ajahn Semedo, and a lot of the other teachers in the U.S. monastics. Um, they teach it much more integrated, more the way that I was um giving in the guided meditation. So they teach it. And I have, I've referenced this, this article a few times. It's called A Honed and Heavy Axe. And it's by a monk in the Ajahn Chah lineage named Ajahn Chandiko, who I had a chance to meet a few years ago and well, many years ago now. He's an American. He runs a um, a monastery in New Zealand. And uh, when he first became a monk at the age of 20 or 21. He went around and he, um, he met with all of the senior forest monastics, men and women, who had studied directly with Ajahn Shah, who were very advanced in their practice. And he found that all of them did both Samatha and Vipassana. And all of them had progressed in the Samatha path too, which they can't say because they're monastics and they can't say what their attainments are. But they told him that Ajahn Chah was practicing the two together and that he was he could go into what's called the jhana. It's an advanced Samatha Um stage of Samatha at one breath and that he was constantly going in and out of Samatha and Vipassana all the time, but he people didn't know that because he couldn't talk about his attainments. Being a monk, it's against the monastic code. So anyway, he's written this paper called A Honed and Heavy Axe that really talks about the, the subtitle is Samatha and Vipassana in Harmony. So this is kind of where I got the idea to do these this series because um that's really how it's taught in the Thai forest tradition for for monastics and um they see it like 2 feet up the mountain that the two practices are really carrying us to um awakening and um so a few other differences in the practices in the Burmese tradition they use more noting in the Vipassana section where they're actually using a one word note to, uh, for their experience to, to give a contact with that um, experience. In the Thai forest tradition, they use noticing more than noting. And that does make it easier to go back and forth because we're not ever really using noting of experience in Samatha. Samatha does have an equivalent to noting, which is the counting. So each of the practices have something that is used that's a verbal note in the mind, very light. Samatha has the counting up to eight and then back down to one for each in and out breath. Vipassana has the noting for like, if we notice we're planning, we can say planning. Or if we're hearing something, we could say hearing you know, internally. Um, And then in the Brahma Biharas, the heart practices, there are phrases that can come down to one word that support our object, but they aren't the actual object themselves. So each practice has its own version of that. Um, But in the Thai forest tradition, they really use noticing a lot more. And this allows them to go back and forth where they might do Samatha for some period, maybe even days, where as monastics, they're not doing retreats like we are. I mean, if we think about how it is in a monastery, they aren't doing a, a one-week Vipassana retreat and then doing a one-week Samatha retreat. They're all sitting in a big room and everybody's doing whatever practice is appropriate for them at that moment. You know, we kind of lost that as we've um, mostly now are householders, we've lost how they actually practice, which is they did it fluidly and they would apply the Brahmaviharas if If they were um, feeling that the practice was kind of dry or if they were having some heart, you know, say they really discovered some deeper pain around a particular pattern that's in their consciousness, like why? Why did they use planning? Well, maybe their home environment wasn't that safe. And so they would plan ahead to try and avoid bad things happening. You know, that can be a painful thing to realize in our practice. And we might want to apply something like loving kindness or compassion. When we encounter material like that, it could be quite skillful to switch over to um, one of the heart practices when that's happening. So this is how it's practiced in in monastic settings where they're using their knowledge of different practices to actually be with what's arising skillfully in their practice. They're not doing retreats the way we do it as householders so much. I mean, when they first come to a monastery, they're gonna be taught a certain practice first. But once they know the territory, they're really using the practices in a much more um, fluid way. So really all three categories of practice. And then in the neuroscience, there's actually four categories. So we've got heart practices, the Brown Viharas. We've got focused attention practices that are known in the neuroscience, which would be Samatha. We've got open monitoring category of practices, which is the pasana, and then there's a fourth category called self-transcending practices, and what we have for that in Theravada Buddhism is the citta nu pasana practice taught by Saida Utejaniya, and personally I think that the zogchen practice has that the most well developed version of the self transcending practice. But you know, once we have our, we have some sense of how to use these, we would really use all four categories fluidly in such a way that um, we're applying them to what's actually going on in our practice. but even with that, it can be good to undertake a period where we're really focusing on one thing. Like I'll have people, teachers even, um, come and do the Samatha for some period, for six months or a month or a year, or do a home retreat for two weeks doing that, even when somebody's quite experienced because they're maybe their concentration isn't really strong enough to be able to sustain, say, an extended period of being with what's happening in the present moment without becoming identified. So this is where, you know, doing periods of any of the categories of practice in depth can be good for really developing that capacity, just the way we might do that in physical exercise. We might, you know, do, uh, you know, a few months where we really focus on one of the, on cardio or on weights or on yoga, where we're stretching, we could equate that to the heart practices. We might do that a little bit more heavily because we can see that we'd really benefit from, you know, doing a deep dive into one of the, one of the categories of practices. So um, this is a little bit of an overview of, of how, you know, and Samatha and Vipassana are really kind of the core within Theravada Buddhism. Vipassana, with the insight tradition, Vipassana is really the core with Samatha and, and the heart practices kind of added. But if you look at what the Buddha was really saying, um, he... He didn't really make that distinction in in most of the suttas. He really talked about Samatha and Vipassana together very fluidly. So we can kind of see those as, as the core of what he was telling people to do. So this gives you a sense of how you can work with them together, either doing it in daily practice or, you know, doing deep dives when you do retreats in such a way that you can really round out your practice or build up some capacities that maybe you're noticing you don't have as much like um, in Vipassana, if you notice that say you're getting really caught up in patterning, Vipassana can really help us investigate that and open it up in such a way that um, we develop a wisdom to be with how things are without getting really caught up in them and with maintaining some level of equanimity in the face of, of life's ups and downs, as well as the ups and downs on the cushion that we can be with them without getting so um, so caught up and disturbed by them. So I'll stop there and see if there are any um, questions uh-huh. or comments.
2: Michael. Okay, I was just curious about, well, a few things, but one mainly uh, in the, when you, when you were speaking of the four categories, so these are the four categories of, um, you could just say four categories of practice, right? Right, the heart, yeah, those the are-
1: I gave them according to neuroscience, but the cool thing is that in Buddhism, especially if you include Tibetan Buddhism, we they knew about those 2,600
2: years ago. So, (laughs) my other um, so when you were speaking of self transcending, before you mentioned the dzogchen, you said the term chitta. Is this from a sutra? Um, It's uh, the practice is called chitta nupasana.
1: And in particular, there's a teacher named Sayadaw Utejania who's alive today who's popularized that practice. There are other teachers who teach it who've focused on it, but that is the name. If you put that uh, in the internet, you can find some Sayadaw, S A Y A D A W, and then the letter U, and then Tajania, T-E-J-A-N-Y-A, or something close to that.
2: <laughs> okay, is this uh, is this Southeast Asian also? Yeah, South- well,
1: he's yeah, he's Burmese. He's Burmese. Burmese.
2: Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Now, maybe this is a stupid question. I don't want to take up all the time, but just uh, I have my own idea, and maybe we all do, of what you mean by, you know, in our mind stream. But what do you mean by when you say, um, I think you said, like samata brings the mind stream together? What What is the mind stream? Or how would you define that? Well, you could, you
1: could say awareness brings awareness together. So it's really where are or attention, like in somata, the technical neuroscience term is focused attention. So our attention, instead of, when we when we place, like in somata, we're, we're cultivating focused attention so that when we place our attention on an object, like the breath, it can stay there. It's not getting pulled off basically anytime we're getting caught up in patterning and grooves in our consciousness and we can't stay with an object that's compulsive it's kind of the definition of compulsive is we can't stop ourselves from doing it you know so these yeah. grooves are so entrenched in our consciousness that they're compulsive that we can't literally can't not do it we find ourselves caught up in a thought about work tomorrow so so that's what focused attention mind stream you know includes to me both the attention but also the grooves that we're encountering in our consciousness that are part of what like samatha is called purification of mind what are we purifying we're purifying our consciousness we're purifying the mind stream so that it's not so compulsive those things I use the term a lot the thinning of the knee so when those grooves get thinned out it's just like a deer trail I mean we know this now through the neuroscience if you're running over a pattern you know tens of thousands of times a day or a thousands of times a day it's going to be a really thick synapse you know your th- synapses are gonna be really thick, but if you do that less and less, it's like a deer trail. If the deer walk over it a lot, it's gonna be really ground in, but if they stop walking on it so much, it starts growing back in. That's pretty much what happens to our, um, our neural pathways.
2: Is this, this, I think of it as one of the three poisons really, that delusion of belief structures Right. The consciousness is believing this, uh, all, all these patterns. Right. Beliefing.
1: Well, That's there's, like, yeah, ultimately it all comes down to delusion. That's kind of the core <laughs> of everything. But, you know, we also will see our specific delusion if we're looking at it as a defilement has a real different flavor than desire or aversion, You know, and so that's part of what we get to see. Are we more, do we go more into delusion where we're falling asleep on ourselves or do we get caught up in really being unhappy with what's happening or anxious, fearful, or do we, are we fantasizing about stuff we want? Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the question. Other questions or comments? David's
3: raising his hand. Hi, David. Hi, Dina. Thanks so much for uh, putting this on tonight. I really appreciate you taking the time to guide us this evening.
0: Sure.
3: Um, A question I have is I've really enjoyed the way you've tried to integrate all the different aspects of what I consider meditation practice, uh, the three categories, and then bringing in kind of the non-dual with the Dzogchen aspect. Um, But we still have this prevalence in uh, the East and the West of the traditions, even within Theravada, dividing things, right? Um, You have teachers in lineages where they say, you know, if you practice with any other teacher, even if they're Theravada Buddhist, you're not even welcome back here anymore. Um,
1: Oh, wow. That's pretty harsh. Okay.
3: Well, in the Goinka tradition, for example, um, that's very much okay. the case. Yeah, they'll wow. ask you, if, you're, uh, if you've sat more than a 10-day course, you're a long-term student, every application for every course, there's a question, have you sat anything else? And if so, then there'll be kind of questions about it and whatnot, you know. Um, wow. um, yeah, and you can even, they could say, you know, no more. I've had a couple of friends who that's happened to over the years.
0: Wow.
3: Um, yeah, so... And so I've I've myself because I practiced in that tradition for well over twenty years. um, You know, gained a lot of benefit from it, but over time uh, began uh, being exposed to say someone like Michael Taft, um, who's very open to all traditions as long as you know it's working towards awakening.
1: Right. Michael and I share a lot of similarities.
3: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Definitely. (laughs) Um, Do you see that there will be a movement amongst because you're you're in the Western Dharma teacher scene, so to speak. Um, Do you see that there's a movement towards integrating all the practices into, like you say, a very fluid, seamless whole? Because that's how I find what I'd call a whole life practice, daily practice, is, you know, there's times when you see a hindrance arise. So you bring up one of the Brahma Baharas to try and massage that, Um, or maybe you find you're wandering. And so you go more into of watching your breath. And then maybe you're going into a non-dual type practice, you know, and these are all going throughout the day all day long, right? You're uh-huh. just kind of moving with each of them. Um, but I don't find anyone teaches that. You, you know, really. Well yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. which which is why I love listening to your teaching. Um but do you see things moving that way at all or
1: um I think there's been more openness. Um, like when I first was practicing, I mean, I went and I was taught Vipassana, no one ever said there were other meditations, you know, so I just thought that was it. That was meditation, you know, but then over time, I started doing the month longs, then they started introducing the Metta and the Brown Viharas a little bit. And then I was in one of the first groups that was doing, it was like secretly doing concentration, they were like, six of us in the sea of you know a hundred vipassana yogis and uh, and over time it's gotten to be very accepted that people are doing different practices but there are still places like you know i used to at the forest refuge they used to let people call me if they were doing samatha they don't allow that anymore most of the teachers who are there on the solo retreats are teach vipassana so if you are practicing samatha you can't get any support while you're there, you know? So they've put a hard line there. I get why they did it. They may have had other reasons of, you know, I mean, how do we know what these people are being told? So it Mm -hmm. gets kind of dicey for them if they don't know that. But it does, it makes it hard for the person Mm
0: -hmm. who's Mm -hmm.
1: trying to do an integrated practice. Um, So I think it's improved some, Mm -hmm. but um, it's not the norm. Mm-hmm. It's not the norm. And that's, I mean, because I'm I'm very um non-fundamentalist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I practiced even in traditions outside of Buddhism. I've had Christian nuns on my retreats, I've had, you know, um Muslims, I've had Wicca practitioners. So I mean to me, it's all moving towards awakening. Mm-hmm. I just happen to think Buddhism has some really amazing practices. And you know, uh so I, I think it's moving that way, but most most of the teachings are fairly separate still mm-hmm. that I see. Yeah.
3: Well, I just personally want to thank you so much uh, from the bottom of my heart for integrating all these paths together. From Jhana to vipassana to using the brahma Viharas, even for jhana um, and then working in the non-dual you're the first person i've seen doing it and i absolutely appreciate it from the bottom of my heart my
1: pleasure thank you i appreciate your saying that any other questions or comments karen hi tina hi karen So I guess my takeaway from what you uh, said tonight in the talk and the examples
2: and uh, the Q&A is that we each kind of follow our heart in our practice, um, doing what seems appropriate, although there's definitely an emphasis time for each one in order to learn
1: them and progress in them. But other than that, uh, just kind of sensing ourselves and maybe seeking guidance from a teacher and going from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's, I I have sort of two um, ways of holding that. One is, is what you just said. And I think overall in a person's practice, a lot of times people will come to me and say, well, what do you think I should practice? And sometimes depending on what is going on in their situation, I might suggest one practice or another. But I, I also always will say to the person, where, do you, where does your heart feel drawn? Because if somebody is inspired by a practice and it feels like they're really like just chomping at the bit to do that, um, their motivation is going to be there. You know, there's an there's already a natural motivation arising, so that carries a lot of weight. So that's the one side. The other side of what I I also will tell people is that I. Don't feel that from day to day, we should just be skipping around all over the place. Because one of the downsides of our era is that we do have access to all these amazing teachings. Basically anything that's out there that you used to have to stand in front of a monastery door for a month in the rain to get, you know, we can now get in four seconds off of Google. So um, uh, it's easy to be superficial you know, and the minute a practice starts getting hard, it's like, well, that's not working. I'm going to go over here. And and in that way, we're never challenging ourselves. We're lifting a two pound weight for our whole life. We're never even going up to a five pound or a 10 pound weight. So we're not challenging the patterns if we skip around too much. So that, So to me, that's the balance is like feeling, am I, doing this because something's getting hard and I don't want to like challenge my own patterns or am I doing it out of skillful means that's really the place to um I think bring a level of wisdom to yeah but ultimately like you know when I'm doing retreats with people, no matter what the topic of the retreat is, I mean, most of my retreats now I'm teaching at least two of the practices. So that way people can start understanding this integrated approach for themselves. But like, say I'm teaching a Samatha retreat. Yes, I will tell people about Vipassana and how to use it when you're hitting a really when a hindrance or defilement is really in your face. But privately, if somebody's really in a painful place or their practice is really dry, I might tell them, you know, you should maybe try five minutes of metta at the beginning of your sitting, every sitting. Or if they're in a really hard place, maybe they should do metta for a whole day or, you know, equanimity or compassion for themselves. So um, uh, in that way, it's you know, you're applying what the Buddha gave us to the situation this he gave us all these practices for a reason, because they were all doing different things. And now we know they're through the neuroscience, which is really cool. We actually know that they're act, they're doing different things that are measurable now to our consciousness. So um, it's great having that scientific confirmation. Yeah, and we know he
2: gave us the Vipassana and the Samajna, like you're always saying, in the heart practices. What about Dzogchen and the visual, the Tibetan visualizations? And- yeah,
1: well, the Buddha didn't give us that. Um, the Dzogchen. So in Tibetan Buddhism, one of the things that's really cool about Tibetan Buddhism, but can also be overwhelming, is that they went out and they just got all the best stuff of their day, which was after the Buddha. It was, you know, substantially after the Buddha, they had the bond tradition that was indigenous to their area of which they kind of got included in Zogchen too, but they went out and they got all the best stuff from, from India and Southeast Asia and even China. This is why they have a lot of the energy practices that we don't have in Theravada Buddhism. They have an understanding of the chakras um, And they just incorporated all the best stuff they could find. So it's a lot more complicated than Theravada Buddhism, you know. Um, But no, the Buddha didn't give all of those. Like the the deity meditations, he didn't teach that. Um, He didn't teach the Rigpa practice, which is kind of the pinnacle the last thing you learn in Dzogchen. The other three practices are the building blocks for Dzogchen. So that's, to me, another cool thing is that Dzogchen is the heart practice and then Samatha and then Vipassana and then you bring in the self-transcending right at the end. And um, so in a way, what's great about Dzogchen is that it includes everything. But yes, there is the, the guru yoga that's done as part of I, you know, I actually know of a teacher who thinks that Tibetan Buddhism was using what we now know as positive attachment. Mm. In psychology, where you're using this perfected deity, or and your teacher to bring those qualities inside yourself. Mm. And uh, so you know, if one likes to do those practices, I think there are some benefits. Those aren't being studied to my knowledge. So I don't conclude them in the four because we don't really know exactly what they're doing. I don't know of any studies that are studying those practices, but um, but they can be great practices if one's doing a practice like Zhou Chen as well.
2: Thank you so uh, much.
1: Thanks, Karen. Okay, we're just about out of time there. Well, good to be with you all. Have a lovely rest of your evening. Good night.